Welcome back to the Plantopia podcast, the plant health podcast produced by the American Phytopathological Society. I'm your host, Jim Bradeen, a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president for strategy at Colorado State University. And today I'm delighted to welcome Juliana Gonzalez-Topon. Juliana is a PhD plant pathology student at Cornell University, where she studies the role of small non-coding RNAs in regulating interactions between plant pathogens and their hosts. Juliana first came to love plant pathology as an undergraduate student at Universidad de los, de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia. And Juliana has a very impressive publication and presentation record for an early career scientist. Today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about her current research and we're also going to explore her motivation behind efforts to use social media to fight COVID misinformation, an effort that combines her unique research history and interests. Juliana, thank you so much for joining us on Plantopia. Jim, thank you so much for that introduction. Super excited to be here. I've listened to all the episodes that have been out, so I'm just so happy and we, honored to, to hear be that. here. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much again. I, I really want to know a little bit about you as, as a person, how you you got into plant pathology. I understand as an undergrad student, you you started your studies thinking you wanted to, to work in the area of human genetics. Yeah. How did yep. you end up in plant path? Well, when I, when I was, you know, deciding what to do as a career and just picking a, an undergrad, you know, program. Um, I was very set on wanting to do something that will lead me to work in human genetics and human cancer research mostly. I had like a very strong personal motivation to do that. And in Universidad de los Andes, which is my alma mater back in Colombia, they have two programs. One is biology and the other is microbiology. And honestly, when I was picking, you know, what to do, I had no idea what microbiology was. <laughs> so I was like, well, let's go with biology, which is what I understand and what I know could lead me to what I want to do. During, you know, the process, it was a four-year um, program. And about after two years, I realized that, yeah, I liked it, but I was much more of like a lab person than a, you know, outgoing and 100% field person. And that's a little bit where the biology career was focused there. So I decided to do both. They gave you the option of do, you know, mix, sort of mix and match programs. So I did both of them. And that's the point where I started to try, you know, join labs to gain experience in what I wanted to do, right? In molecular biology, in research. And I joined, joined a human genetics lab. And I was very close, honestly, to just do my dissertation there and just continue there. But situations in that lab led to me being in a moment where there was no really like an advisor that was available to guide me in what I specifically wanted back then. I didn't feel very supported there. And I did remember that I had just taken like a class that's called a sort of fungal biology or just fungi in general, with Silvia Restrepo, who you might know for NPS. And I went to talk to her and I said, I'm not sure this is the lab for me. I'm not sure I'm going to have like the chances of research, but I do know I like pathogens. I do know I like microbiology and molecular biology. And I had just seen also a class called epigenetics 
And I was like, this is amazing. I want to do everything in this in my life. And she was like, well, I love everything that you're saying and you're super welcome in my lab, but I don't work with humans. <laughs> I work with plants. And I was like, what? And that was the moment I started to understand that, you know, we have human diseases, we have human research, but then we have plant diseases and plant science research and the importance of that. And it all sort of matched, you know, those moments in science where everything sort of comes into place in your favor. Um, I was also starting to take a class basically called plant pathology and just everything came together in my mind. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. She opened the, lab, the doors to her lab to me and I did two undergrad thesis actually right there because I want to do one for the biology program and one for the microbiology program. And then I just ended up with so many questions that I stayed and I did my master's there, all in plant pathology. Um, so yeah, that was the beginning of it. <laughs> that, that's amazing. It, um, you know, the importance of, of good mentors and of those firsthand experiences, really, really critical for so many of us in, in this field. You, you mentioned your master's and I, I recently um, saw a preprint on the, the bioarchive uh, server that I think came from your master's research. The, the title of that is Evaluation of Small Non-Coding RNAs as a Possible Epigenetic Mechanism Mediating the Transformation from Biotrophy to Necrotrophy in the Life Cycle of Phytophthora Infestans. Um, so, so there's a lot of great information just in the title. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I think... Um, in, in plant pathology, many of us uh, probably know what Phytophthora infestans is, but um, for our, our broader um, listenership, uh, tell us a little bit about Phytophthora infestans and why we care about this thing. Yeah, and that's perfect to actually continue with this story because when I ended up in Sylvia's lab, she worked with different things, but her main focus at that moment was Phytophthora infestans, um, which, you know, the common name would be late blight. And it's a very important disease, both in Colombia, where I'm from, and in the world, basically. Um, I don't know if, you know, a more broader listener has heard about the um, big famine that happened in, uh, in Ireland, like 1800s, that basically wiped off 30% of their population. It was also one of the main drivers for a lot of people there migrating to the United States and just looking for, you know, starting life in a different place. Um, and that was because this pathogen is so destructive, so extremely destructive, that it basically was wiping off their potato crops, which was one of their main, you know, food resources that they had there. And also just economy resource, because they were also growing and selling that. Um, and this, you know, it's interesting to think that this pathogen has been around for so long and it's still a very big problem. And it's still something that worries plant pathologists a lot. So when I heard about all this story in Phytophthora infestans, and I had the opportunity to work in this lab that was really trying to understand it better in Colombia, uh, to use information from the you know, United States lineages that we have here, and then understand what we have down there in Colombia, I was like, this is very exciting. So what I did, both I can make sort of undergrad and master's because it ended up being, you know, all together in almost three different articles. 
if I can divide it in two parts. One is the one that you're mentioning, which is uh, tried to really understand the molecular interactions that this pathogen has um, when it's infecting or when it is, you know, just thriving in the plant. Mm, and in that sense, that's a still a work in progress, the one you read, that's why it's still a preprint, while well, the others are already published. This one, we wanted to see if small RNAs, which are something that has gained more attention in more recent years, but back then, this was like 2015, 2016, maybe, it didn't really, was not really much studied in this pathogen yet. There were papers, of course, uh, but nothing from Colombia, nothing, you know, done there. And I wanted to understand how it could impact how this uh, pathogen attacks the plant. And that's where the funny words you were reading come from, biotrophy and necrotrophy too. <laughs> Go ahead. Let, let, let me ask a quick question though. Um, yeah. What, what is a small non-coding RNA? Great question. <laughs> well, I think most people are familiar now, especially after the pandemic, with just the word RNA, right? And how it's this molecule that's very important in every single living being. And we have different types of RNA. This one, the small known coding one, are very small. And when I'm talking small, are like, you know, 20 base pairs, especially in Phytophthora, they were re really small, um, that are really interesting because they are sequenced, just, you know, uh, normal RNA sequence matches places in the genome. And the reason why they match different places in the genome is because they will guide a whole protein complex to whichever location they match to. And then that protein complex will help degrade, for example, an RNA transcript before it becomes protein or before it produces a protein. So these we all know the normal, you know, molecular biology dogma where we go from DNA, our genes, which are basically our instructions, right, in our cells or the pathogen cells. Then we go to RNA, which is this transition from the gene to the protein. Sort of, I explain it in more broader terms as like an instruction, as if you were taking notes from a book before you actually go and do something with that. And then the end product or the result, which will be the proteins. So the small RNAs are, you know, an additional thing that comes into play in all these normal process where they can help us regulate which of these trans transcripts or normal RNAs as we mostly know them from, uh, whether they become or generate protein or not. And that is one of the reasons why it, it, this is part of what we know as epigenetics, which I, I mean, maybe we can get into detail later, but in general terms, we have genetics, right? Where you have your genes and your genes say exactly what they are meant to say. Uh, but then you have epigenetics, which are these other processes that happen in the cells and decide or regulate whether those genes are becoming protein, when are they coming protein, and you know, in which parts, in our case, our body, in the pathogen's case, well, it's different structures. Great explanation. I, I appreciate <laughs> that clarity. So how is Phytophthora infestans using these non-coding RNAs? Well, that's what we are trying to figure out. But I can tell you two things. For this preprint that we're still working on, Phytophthora 
does something that some pathogens do, but not all, which is it starts living in the plant, let's say a potato plant, and it, start, it starts feeding on it. It eats the you know, living tissue, the leaves, the tubers, even the stems in some cases. Um, and then at some point during its life cycle, it just makes a switch and it starts being really aggressive, killing all of it. So not keeping it alive, just really making the tissue become necrotic and, you know, death. Um, and that's what we call necrotrophy. So that's why this pathogen is an amibiotropic pathogen because it goes from biotrophy to necrotrophy. Other pathogens are always necrotic, like the moment they get there, they just kill everything. Others are always biotroph. So like they get there and they maintain the plant alive to feed from that. Um, and what we think and we're trying to show with this paper uh, that I hope will be finished soon is that maybe these small non-coding RNAs are helping it turn on and off certain genes depending on the moment of the cycle where it needs to be. So, yeah, so, so the pathogen really needs to regulate um, it, its own genes, right? So exactly. that it's expressing certain, certain proteins um, at certain times in that infection process. Exactly. And that's what, you know, usually happens with pathogens. But I felt when I was starting in plant pathology that um, I wanted to understand that better because pathogens not, don't work the same at every single moment. They have to adjust and they have to adapt to the environment where they are at. The, you know, the amount of food they find, the type of plant they are facing, the variety that they're facing. So there's so many different things that, yes, we have explanations for some of them that are very clear and like are very genetic based. But there were others that, that seemed to me, um, at least with Phytophthora, didn't have such a clear genetic explanation. They might have just a regulatory explanation behind them. Yeah, it really strikes me. You, you mentioned that the Irish potato famine or the, the European potato famine of the 1840s. It, it really strikes me that um, we have, we as a research community have done a lot of work on phytophthora infestans and the potato late blight pathosystem. Um, but we're, you know, 180 years almost uh, out from the, the Irish potato famine. And there's still so much to learn about, uh, the, about the pathogen and the host and their interactions. Yes. Um, re really exciting work. Yeah. And that actually gives me a little bit of moment to tell you very quickly, and you can then decide if this <laughs> makes sense, um, about another project we had during my master, which is actually already published. So this one you guys can read more easily. And it all stemmed from a mistake, if you want to call it like that, that happened here at Cornell in Dr. Bill Fry's lab years ago, like seven years ago. And it was because, as we have been saying, since Phytophthora is so aggressive and so um, difficult to manage, one of the things that you know, the community has done and the plant scientists have done during these years to control it is just use fungicides and just chemical compounds to control it. And that's, you know, what mostly people use in their field and growers use in their farms. So this lab, Dr. Bill's Fry lab, who has done amazing work in Phytophthora for so many years, they were testing different, you know, fungicides and specifically one that's called Mephanoxam 
very commonly used here in the US, um, and different concentrations of it to see, you know, which ones of the lineages that they had in the lab, mostly from New York State, were susceptible to the fungicide or resistant to it, and in what concentrations. And, you know, imagine they were testing uh, in a plate which zero fungicide, so the pathogen can live happily there, and then a meat concentration where, you know, it was enough to control its growth, but it was not enough to fully wipe it off. And then another one with a lot more fungicide to the level where it's just lethal to it. And they were just making, you know, routinary transfers from one to the other. And someone just messed it up in the sense that instead of making the transfer from the original one without fungicide, they made a transfer from the mid concentration. So the one that regulated it, but not killed it. And then when they passed it to, you know, the same set of concentrations again, the pathogen was able to grow in all of them, even the lethal one, as if there was no fungicide there. And this is one of those things in science that sort of comes by serendipity and you're like, oh, I thought this was a mistake, but maybe, no, maybe it's something. Let's make an experiment, right? Let's plan an experiment to test that. Um, and when they tested it, it turned out that it repeated, which is what we're looking for, right? As scientists to see if things replicate <laughs> um, and happen again. And it happened in different lineages. Uh, it happened in different times that they repeated it. Um, that ended up generating a paper in, I think it's Phytopathology 2015. And in that paper, one of the authors is Giovanna Anies, who was in that moment a PhD student in Dr. Fry's lab. But then she went back to Colombia because she was originally from Colombia and then ended up being my teacher of plant pathology. And when she told us about this, I was like, that is amazing. She also said, you know, after they acquired, they were calling it acquired resistance. If you put it back in media without the fungicide, it progressively loses that resistance. So it's not like the common fungicide resistance that we already know of where you gain it and like, that's it. The population is already resistant, nothing so, to do. So that suggested it wasn't a genetic change. Exactly, that suggested it was an, uh -huh, an, a genetic change, so an epigenetic one. And that was one of the main drivers that it was like, I need to study this. Um, and then the other paper I was mentioning, which was actually published last year um, in Plant Disease, we made all these sets of molecular biology techniques, um, including small RNA testing, as you were mentioning earlier, to try and understand what are the things that are changing in the pathogen when it gets resistant and then when it goes back to sort of losing that. And honestly, that's one of the papers that I'm most proud of just because it was so much work, so many years put in that. Um, but it's a, it's a good way and I think it's a very beautiful way to sort of show how pathogens are not static things, they change. Um, and part of the challenge for us as scientists and, you know, plant pathologists is understand how that change goes and how we can play with that to our advantage. I, I really love that. Um, and it, it makes me think of the, the many, many times I've talked to different plant pathologists working in different pathosystems where, um, you know, essentially they describe the plant pathogen growing in, in culture and it getting kind of lazy, it, it becomes oh, yeah. a less, less well adapted to the host. 
And um, I, I think what you're describing is a really good case of, of that. Um, and really interesting that, that you've been able to pinpoint an epigenetic origin for this. I think it explains a lot in our science. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wanted to mention that on uh, the plantopiapodcast.org, which is the official landing page for this, we'll uh, include links to all of the papers that, that we've uh, referenced today. <laughs> So it sounds like you had a, a really uh, incredibly productive and exciting master's program. And, and now you're at Cornell as a PhD student. Um, I, I guess, first of all, how'd you get to Cornell? Uh, why Cornell and, and what are you doing today? Yeah, so, you know, I've mentioned my two mentors from Universidad de los Andes, Silvia Restrepo and Joanna Danias. They were both 100% for Cornell. <laughs> Joanna was, as I said, a PhD student here, and then Sylvia did her postdoc here. So when I was finishing my master's, um, I sort of said, you know, I want to stay in academia. I feel like I want to keep researching, but I'm a little bit lost as to what to do now. And they both say, well, just go and do a PhD. And I said, I have no money to do a PhD. <laughs> and they said, usually nobody does. That's why we find for you know, funding. That's why we look for places that have programs for funding. And um, they said, you know, Cornell is an amazing place. So in 2017, uh, which was between the end of my undergrad and the beginning of my master, we had already talked about you know, future in research. I had the opportunity to come to Cornell during the summer. Basically, it was from yeah June to August, and just be an intern in one of the plant pathology labs. That summer, I was part of Dr. Keith Perry's lab, and it was a little bit different because they worked with viruses, but also small RNAs. They, in that case, they used um, small RNAs to understand which viruses they were finding um, in vines population here in the Finger Lakes, which is super important um, in this region for wine production. Um, and so that was an amazing experience, not only in research you know, sense, and I learned a lot from them, but also just in going outside of my country, seeing how science was being done outside in the US in a gigantic institution as Cornell. And figuring if, you know, it felt like a place for me as like long term. And it did. I came back home feeling that I didn't want to do you know, long term research here. And I guess I just tried to come back as much as I could. The following summer, which was one the one I was 100% into my master's, we realized that it was easier for me to come here and do some of my experiments in Dr. Fry's lab instead of like importing everything we needed and all the reagents and everything to Colombia, which is one of the you know, challenges of doing research in um, smaller countries. So I did, I came here, I just confirmed that this was the place for me. And as soon as I came back, I applied um, to start my PhD you know, in the next fall. I was a little bit reckless in the sense that I only applied to Cornell. I then realized when I was invited as a you know, recruiting student that all the other people that were here with me had applied to tens of universities. And they were like, which, you know, which are your choices? And I was like, I only applied to Cornell. Like, <laughs> I like that confidence. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was a mixture of confidence, but also just like, I didn't know. I was not aware that you had to have options. <laughs> I was sort of like 
if Cornell says no, then I'll just stay here for more, you know, for longer and look for something else to do here. Um, but fortunately, that's, they said yes. And I came and started my PhD in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. That's great. And Cornell certainly is a, a great institution. <laughs> uh, what, what's it been like, though, as a graduate student in this pandemic period? It has been challenging, I can say. I started in June, so that meant that I had the summer and the fall in sort of like a normal campus and a normal situation. I, you know, I went to classes. I just normally what you do as a first year PhD student is like go to classes and start thinking about your research, do small projects in the lab and just get, a, a, you know, accustomed to it and to the people. Um, but then as soon as the spring semester started, things started to look strange and, you know, news kept coming of these virus that was around. Um, and then mid-March, there was just one day that Cornell sent an email and said, you know, uh, we're gonna bring the spring break closer and we're gonna send the undergrads home. If you're a grad student, of course you can stay, but you cannot work in the lab until further notice and that's it. And I guess, you know, as probably everybody that is listening to this, is, you know, felt very scared. Um, in my case also, I think I have the additional challenge of being an international student. And I felt like I had just moved here. I didn't even enjoy a full year. And I was not sure if we were going to be able to stay or what was going to happen. And I say we because my husband moved here with me. Like I moved my whole life here. It's not that I just came myself. Um, but I think my advisor, which is Dr. Melanie Filatred here at Cornell, she was super flexible. She was super understanding. And she said, well, we're just going to make the best of this situation. Um, we were not able to go back to the lab for about two or three months. So during that time, I did a lot of bioinformatics. I guess I benefited from the sense that I was just starting and I, and I was in a stage where I was planning most of what I was gonna do. So, you know, having time to sit down, look at the data, go into the genomes, you know, download things and start just thinking of what I wanted to do in the lab, but sort of doing like a pre-approach from my computer, that was very helpful. So when I came back into the lab during the summer, I felt I was more productive just because I had so much time to think that through. But after that, it's just been a challenge of like, you know, moments when we were allowed to go in the lab, we had restrictions of how many people would be there and at what times. So you had to plan your experiments really well so that they fit in the time that you were able to go into the lab and not lose any time. And now that that's much more relaxed, I feel I have not stepped back from that. So when I go to the lab, I'm like super concentrated and, and I do all these things. And then I realized, well, you know, I can take it more slowly. I don't need to get out of here in like two hours. So, yeah, but I think the biggest challenge, more like aside from the research, was just not having an in-person community around when you're such a young student. Also, my cohort was very small, so we didn't really have other people to rely on. I mean, you could talk to people on Zoom, but it's different. Um, and it's just the, the difference of then going back and seeing these younger cohorts being able to meet in person and like do take all their classes in person. I think it was dif difficult, but 
um, I don't know. I just think we made the best of it. That, that story certainly rings true to me as well. Um, you're, you're describing that sort of the social aspect of science and you know, just despite uh, how science is often portrayed in, in popular press or movies, um, they're, they're really critical social communal aspects of science, um, learning from each other, um, supporting each other, uh, you know, getting, getting to know um, each other. That, that's really very critical. And it's certainly something that has been a challenge, uh, particularly during the lockdown phase of this, this pandemic. I'm glad you've come through that period uh, well, and, and I hope that for your, your sake and as well as uh, all of ours, uh, that the worst of that is behind us. Yeah. Could, could you tell us a little bit about what your PhD research is at this point? Yeah. So, you know, I came to Cornell with this experience in all my seats um, because I have worked with Phytophthora so much. The scenario here at Cornell was a little bit changing in that moment. There was no lab that was working exactly what I've done before. And that was actually really great <laughs> because I just wanted to use all that experience in molecular biology and just maybe apply it in something different. Um, I chose Dr. Melanie Filiotrot's lab. She works with bacteria in general that affect plants. She had a very strong focus on Pseudomonas syringae that, as you may know, is one of our model bacteria for you know, plant disease and that has been researched so much by so many people. But then more recently, she has included in her program another bacterium that's called Dicchia datanti. It was formerly known as Erwinia chrysanthemi, and I mentioned that because I know a lot of, you know, seasoned plant pathologists are like, Dikya what? Like they recognize the old name, of course. And, um, and this is a soft rot pathogen? Of it is a soft rot pathogen. Yes, it is very closely related to Pectobacterium, uh, which you might have, have also heard of. And, and yeah, its name was recently changed, 2005. It became important, I guess, more important in the U.S. and the Eastern plant pathology industry and, and research area is starting in 2018, 2019, because there was an outbreak in basically that affected basically all the states that produce potatoes. And people were like, what is this? Where is this pathogen coming from? Is, is it vector bacterium? No, it's not. It's different. What is it? And a lot of you know research institutions in the East, including Cornell, um, decided that they needed to, you know, give a hand and start understanding this pathogen as well, which curiously has been more studied in Europe because it has been generating problems in Europe for a longer time. The species that we have here and there are a little bit different, but um, just the general genus has been widely recognized in Europe earlier than here. So my PI included Dikia in her work. That meant that she included potatoes in her work. And that was very attractive to me in the sense that I could both do you know, molecular biology and epigenetics, but also continue with the crop that I've been working with. And potatoes are also are not only one of the five major crops grown in the world and are exceedingly important in the US, but they are also very important in Colombia. So I felt that it was also a way to maintain things that are gonna be relevant from my, you know, for my home country. So, um, so what I'm doing with Dikia, going back to that, is a very molecular based research as well. 
um, I am trying to understand how it senses its environment. So as I mentioned, pathogens have to understand what's going on and then respond to that. Um, and one of the ways they do that, and mostly bacteria, is a process called chemotaxis. And it's just basically sensing chemical cues from the environment and responding to it. Those cues can be, you know, plant compounds, um, defense compounds that the plants are generating when they're being attacked, and then the bacteria responds to that. So I'm understanding how that process works. But then I'm also understanding um, if there's, again, <laughs> an epigenetic mechanism behind that, that will help them be quick and reversible. That's the two things that are most important in epigenetic mechanisms, that they are very quick to do, quicker than just you know gaining a genetic mutation that gets fixed over time, and again, reversible. And we're looking at specifically at a group of genes uh, that are called methyl-accepting chemoreceptors, but we call them MCPs for short, that are mainly required for that sensing process that I was say saying. And curiously, Dikia Dadanti, which is one of the species that we're working with, has so many of them compared to, you know, closely related pathogens. And the question starts where, you know, why does it have so many? Why does it need so many? And how is it regulating that many um, genes that could be doing the same thing? Or are they not? Maybe they're doing different things. So, I'm, you know, I still don't have answers, of course, because I have two more years to go here, but we do know that these genes have a very long upstream region, so right before the gene. It's a region that was considered to be empty, like no genes were there, but uh, previous people from my lab realized that that region is actually being transcribed and you know, it's being expressed in some sense when the bacteria is infecting the plants. And that just made me think and made us think, well, there's something there that is not empty. Um, what is it there? And up until now, we know that the structures that we're seeing there very much resemble uh, small RNA structures. And we're trying to understand you know, which small RNAs are there. Are they actually regulating the genes that are right next to them? Or are they doing something different? But we do know there's something there and we're trying to get a hold of it. And if we do understand that, then, you know, potentially can use that um, to control how much these bacteria senses its environment. Of course, that's a super long term goal, but everything in molecular biology starts like that. Like you have to look at the little details before you think of the bigger thing where you can apply that. That is super, super exciting work. And, and I, I really look forward to seeing where this research goes. I think it has broad implications for our, our basic biological understanding of plant microbe interactions, but also um, disease control, as you sort of reference. Yeah. Um, very, very cool work. I, I want to take a moment, though, and, and, and pivot to a related topic. Um, you're, you're something of a, a rock star on Instagram. <laughs> Um, and in fact, you, you've got a really robust social media presence. Um, you, you can follow Juliana on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, and on TikTok, all under the handle EpiPlantPath. That's E-P-I-P-L-A-N-T-P-A-T-H. Um, I want to talk particularly about your, your Instagram account. You've got almost 10,000 followers. Um, your Instagram account is in Spanish. It is. And really is uh, 
professional scientific uh, communication account. Tell us about that account, um, what you're putting out on, on Instagram <laughs> and why you're doing it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question first. Do you have um, group chat with your family? Like with your extended family? Not really. I don't. Um, okay. We text once in a while, but we don't routinely do that. No. Uh-huh. Well, the reason why I'm asking that question is because to explain how this Instagram started, um, I need to make a point regarding how my you know, roots and my Latin American culture are somehow different in some senses to the way maybe you know people here in the US relate to their families. Um, and that's because for some reason, we do have very big family group chats. That's a concept that has been hard to explain to my friends here in the US. They're like the same as you. They're like, what? I mean, I test, text my parents, maybe my grandparents, but every now and then I don't listen, you know, hear from them every single day. And, you know, maybe people that are listening and are also from Latin American background or even a Hispanic background can relate in the sense that for some reason, in our culture, it's very common to have huge family group chats um, where things happen every single day and they share things every single day. And in my um, you know, family group chat from Colombia, there's almost 50 people there, which is a lot. And they share everything they see. They share everything they consider relevant. And you might imagine that when the pandemic started, they just started sharing every single thing they saw in social media, everything they got in their, you know, WhatsApp chats from friends. And I mean, that was fine. They were just trying to socialize what was happening, right? Relate to what was happening. But um, early 2021, when the vaccines started rolling out here in the US, or at least the first people being vaccinated starting going to the news, um, I just started having to deal with messages every single day from my family that were 100% misinformation. There were things like, you know, these vaccines are going to kill us, or what is it that they call RNA? What are they putting on that? Um, what are they getting that into our bodies? Um, Am I so, correct that the most of the folks on on that chat, most of your extended family, are, are not scientists? Exactly. Yes, there are mo I've maybe two scientists, and the rest are just general, you know, audience people. Like they do other things in their life, and they were very scared. And I think that's the the main thing that made me feel uncomfortable with that. I was like. For you know, to me, seeing and reading about these RNA vaccines was like the realization of everything we've been talking about. You know, doing very much molecular research and then making it be useful for the world and for humanity. And I was like so excited about them, about understanding how they work and why were they gonna be rolled out in such a massive sense. Uh, but then I went to that chat and I saw how my aunts and, you know, uncles were extremely scared of just conceiving the idea of getting vaccinated with that. Um, so I told my husband one night, like, I'm going to do something about it. I might just post something on my Facebook that I know they read 
and explain what is RNA very simply, why is it being put in the vaccines, what is it doing in our body, and why is it not a reason to worry, instead it's a reason to be very happy about it. And my husband said, you know, I think a video makes more sense. A video gets more people's attention. Um, and I just grabbed my phone, like literally just grabbed it, sit down, talked um, by like eight minutes in Spanish. Um, and it was directly talking to my family. Um, I sort of presented myself at the beginning, like introduced myself just because I thought, oh, maybe they send it to their friends. So just so they know that I'm not like some crazy person uh, trying to explain RNA. Um, and I finished that. I sent it to them in this group chat. And then I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to just post that in my social media, which at that moment, I had like 50 friends on Instagram, like just my friends. But I thought maybe they're having the same problem with their own families. And maybe it, it works for them to share this. Um, I have to clarify that in that moment, there was no information like you know, accessible about the vaccines in Spanish. There was already things in English and usually the CDC makes a, a, a really good job putting out in their web page explanations that are very simple. Um, but in Spanish, we didn't have any anything like that. And I just did that, left my cell phone aside and, you know, continued my life. And the next day, uh, it was crazy. It had exploded in Instagram. It was having so many views. I was getting a lot of people following me and I was like not really understanding what was going on. But then by reading their messages, I realized they were all needing to hear that from somebody in Spanish, but they didn't have it. They have nobody telling them that. They were sending them to their families. And soon, you know, what used to be a misinformation chain going between group chats in, in you know, this population um, changed to be a chain of this video explaining vaccines very simply and why RNA was not gonna kill us. So that was a moment very, you know, it's a stressful, but it was very exciting to see that the way I had phrased things was resonating with people and was making them uh, understand that at least just give them a second chance, just give a chance to, to understand the vaccines and not say no automatically. And just, I feel it was just like a, a snowball that kept growing. And I kept realizing, you know, I could explain some other things, everything in the level of what, you know, people will normally just learn in high school, but maybe they don't remember, you know, what is DNA? What is RNA? What is a protein? Uh, what are our cells? How do they work? So just very simple things that if you don't work in science and maybe you don't have a passion for science, well, you just saw that in like fourth grade biology and then forgot it. Um, but now it is important again because you're deciding whether to get vaccinated with something that will, you know, have a, just make its work in a set of your cells. So um, yeah, I think it just kept growing. It kept having a really good response from people and after that it just transformed into a more general science communication space in Spanish just because there's not much um, available. Oh I really love that thank you for stepping into that space and and using your 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 scientific understanding your biological background to um to help to help others that that that's that's huge um, and, and that's what plant path is all about too. 
And it, it's wonderful that you um, were in that place and really had the, the foresight to, to invest in this. Um, I guess moving forward, how do you see social media fitting into your professional persona? Yeah, that's a question I've asked myself for this whole year and a half. But I think I've come to some things that I value a lot from it. And one is that as scientists, we sometimes get really concentrated on only what we do, specifically our, for example, our pathosystem, our specific interests, and having a place or having a community that sort of moves me to read about other things, not only what I'm doing and what my really you know, close community is doing, but what is happening in, you know, cancer, um, you know, animal research, all these other things, and picking things that are important for, you know, people to understand and that because they're impacting their own lives, like in that moment, it was vaccines, but it can also be gene editing, it can also be in GMOs, climate change, like there's so many big topics that have a science background behind it. So I feel like it, it's been one of the reasons that has brought me to a moment in my career where I feel very versatile in that I love what I do. I love my research and I see myself going forward in that direction. But I have like these, um, <laughs> I don't know if it's like an alter ego, like another <laughs> side of me that has a really nice community and can interact with it. And I think the other really valuable thing is that about 82% of the people that follow me on Instagram are women. And they are usually aged between 18 and like 38, 40. And, you know, from conversations with them, from reading their messages, I found out that most of them are just either already in science and they're doing their own PhDs, their own masters, their own undergrads, or just thinking of going into science. So it has also combined not only the idea of, you know, talking about science to a broad audience, but showing other women and other girls, especially, how it looks like to be a woman in science and how it looks like to be, you know, day to day. Because sometimes you have like this really unclear idea of how it will look like when you go to do your PhD, but if you just open your Instagram and among all the thousands you know, people you follow, there's a few that show you like, oh, hey, I'm doing a PCR today and this is what PCRs look like. Um, so that has been rewarding, but at the same sense, it has generated a bigger community for me that I do expect will help me in sort of my own academic path to have these connections, you know, having both my connections here in the US, the people, you know, my close community, APS, that has been 100% supportive with me ever since I was an undergrad to now. And then this other community that's all over the world, but it's just opening doors, you know, elsewhere. And I feel like I'm opening one door here, which is this is what it looks like. If you feel like pursuing it, just this is an example. It's not going to be 100% like that, but just so that you have an image of how it is. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that, that really, it, it's exciting. There, there's so many scientists who are using social media these days. And um, I think you're doing it exceptionally well. Thank you so much for, for what you're doing in that space. 
And uh, thank you so much for being our guest today on Plantopia. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Jim, for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you all who are listening to us today. And we just heard from uh, Juliana Gonzalez-Tobon from uh, Cornell University talking about uh, her research on small non-coding RNAs and the role they play in, in regulating plant pathogen uh, interactions. We've also talked a bit about her social media presence and what she's doing to fight uh, COVID misinformation and really raise the profile of science uh, understanding and communication more broadly. I'm Jim Bradeen, the host of the Plantopia podcast. Uh, Plantopia is a production of the American Phytopathological Society. Thank you very much for joining today and we will see you next time.